Hello and welcome to another beautiful day to be listening to Five Alive. We are concluding the book of John chapter 19, or I should say we are concluding the 19th chapter of John today. Uh, you may be thinking, wow, I thought we wrapped this up last week, but we did not get to the most important thing of what happened after Jesus died. He was buried. He was buried, and what all transpired while he was being buried is what we're going to discuss today. And so if you will open your Bibles to John chapter 19, we're going to read just a few verses, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, was secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy-five pounds, in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. All right, so here is what we're going to discuss today. And I, I mean, there's so many questions of what's going on, so hopefully we can answer most of them. But Jesus is dead. We know this full fact that he had been publicly humiliated in front of thousands of people. How can you say thousands of people? We only know a few people that are mentioned that are at the at the cross in Golgotha. Well, because he was taken from Pilate's quarters and he walked all the way to Golgotha. This was in preparation of one of the largest weekends in the year for Jewish history because it is Passover weekend. And so you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people that are in Jerusalem because they are there to celebrate the Passover and they are seeing that there is somebody being led off to be crucified. And so therefore he is publicly humiliated, not just in front of a few of his friends and not just in front of a few people that didn't like him, but millions of people are witnessing Jesus's death. And so how can you fake his death when millions of people are witnessing it? Second of all, is he was brutally, brutally treated, beaten, crown of thorns on his head. He was embarrassed with a robe around him, and then they divided his clothes and gambled over them, and his death is as complete as death can possibly be. There is not a heartbeat. There is not brain activity in this body that Jesus had once been in on this earth for 33 and a half years. And there are witnesses from all over the world that can attest to the fact that he died. And now we have the celebration of the Passover coming. We have Sabbath coming the next day. And so there is a time crunch to get Jesus's body in the tomb. And it had to happen before sunset occurred. So he's been crucified. He was put on the cross. He's been on that cross for about six hours. He's taken down, and now we have a problem. The problem is, is which family member or disciple is going to admit that Jesus is who they want to request and take his body? Why is this a problem? Because there's fear. 
anyone who requests Jesus's body is automatically going to be associated with him. They are an accomplice of him and his made-up crimes. And so therefore, they would possibly be punished in a similar way, and their family would possibly be annihilated. So Jesus's family is afraid. The disciples are afraid. Yes, John the apostle was at Jesus's foot of the cross, and he did say, uh, to to John, this is your mother, and, and mother, this is your son. So they were there at that point, but now all of a sudden, you know, Jesus is dead, and they are grieving. And so we have a few options of what can happen here. We have the brothers and sisters can come claim Jesus's body and bury him. We have the disciples who could come and bury him. We have the fact that the Romans could bury him as a common criminal because that's how he's been executed so far. And that's really all we see, isn't it? As Xavier read in John chapter 19, verse 38, we have God's way that happens. See, common sense tells us the brothers, the sisters, the mother, the disciples would bury him, or he would just be buried as a common criminal. Yet God's way is never, never, never just this, oh, it's a pattern of the way God operates. And so everything's always gonna be in this pattern. God is a God of the miraculous. And so miracles can happen sometimes, can't they? And so is it something that he does all the time? No. Why? Because it's not always needed. It's not always needed. That's absolutely true. But also what about the fact that if he always stepped in for absolutely everything that happened and needed the miracle to take place, the miraculous wouldn't be as special anymore, would it? No. It would be commonplace then. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, a God who is a God of order steps in in this moment and his way is to reveal to us a few secret believers. What are the names of these secret believers? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And so let's talk about Nicodemus first because he was introduced to us by John mm -hmm. already. And so tell me a little bit of what you know about Nicodemus from what we've read so far. He came to Jesus in the middle of the night hiding from the other Pharisees and came to ask him about his preaching because Jesus had preached about new life mm -hmm. and he wanted to understand how new life is possible whenever he's already been born as a human, living human. Absolutely. And so they have a dialogue about this. Now you mentioned the other Pharisees. Why did you say he didn't want the other Pharisees to know? Because he was a Pharisee himself. Right, because he was a Pharisee himself. And so he didn't want the other Pharisees to necessarily know, so he comes in secret, right? Mm -hmm. What else do we know about him? If he's a Pharisee, what does that mean that he does on a regular basis? It means he's at the temple on a regular basis, preaching the, uh, preaching the Old Testament, usually. Absolutely. We also know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, mm -hmm. which was a legislative body of... Uh, Jewish leaders, and a high court. And so he was a member of the Sanhedrin. We can also assume that he had money. I mean, after all, he brought 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh in order to embalm Jesus's body and prepare it for the grave, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, he's a pretty wealthy guy. Does the book of John talk about Nicodemus anywhere else? Oh, well, it talks about it before. It talks then, about him in John chapter 3. And then here. And it talks about it here. 
But believe it or not, John also mentions Nicodemus in another passage of scripture where he does stand up to the Sanhedrin and the other Pharisees, and he says that they need to stop bothering Jesus because he is a good teacher that is doing good works. It's found in John chapter 7, verse 50. And uh, so this is the man Nicodemus who has re-entered as a secret disciple who is no longer saying, I am a secret disciple and I don't want people to know that I follow Jesus. Now he's saying, this man's been convicted as a criminal falsely and I am associating myself with him and I don't care who knows it, I am now a part of the life of Jesus. But we have a new character that enters the scene, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, what do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? Has he always existed as a secret disciple of Jesus? Can we speculate that way? Probably. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden he just decided, hey, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus today. Yeah. So he probably always existed, but he just now enters into the picture. This is important to me, or I think this is important uh, to others as well, is because there are many people in this world that have been seeking out who the one true God is, wanting to follow him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet they don't want to just go tell everybody about it. They keep it to themselves. And that's who Joseph of Arimathea is. He is one of those guys that has been following Jesus. He's been listening to his teachings. He's been seeing and witnessing the miracles. He now has seen Jesus die on the cross. And he has now hit that climax where he knows, I can no longer keep this a secret. I have got to let the world know that I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. I am a member of what would later be called the way. And today is called Christians. We also know that Joseph was wealthy, according to the book of Matthew. We know he was a member of the Sanhedrin, as was Nicodemus. And Luke tells us that he was good and he was a just man. Both Mark and John show the fact that Nicodemus was very bold in the fact that he identified himself with Jesus, specifically by asking for Jesus's body. And so, out of curiosity, have you ever held your tongue have you ever not told somebody that you're a Christian publicly? I know I have. When I was definitely new in the faith of asking Christ into my heart, and then as you get older and you're exposed to more people and others are like, oh, are you a follower of Christ? Or, oh, are you, you're one of those people? Well, I don't know what that means. You know, well, What does that mean? Am I one of those people? And so as I continued to grow in my relationship with Christ, it got easier and easier to say, well, yes, I am one of those people. Um, if that's whom you're referring to, a person who follows wholeheartedly after Christ, then yes, that is who I am. So with time, it gets easier because God's not ashamed of us. So really, I'm not to be ashamed of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a part of that is Definitely, as you just mentioned, it's growth. Like when uh, when we first come to Christ, we've been identified, according to scripture, as a newborn baby. Xavier even referred to the fact that when Nicodemus first came to Jesus in John chapter 3, Jesus described being born of the Spirit is different than being born of the flesh, showing that when we come to new faith in Christ, we are like a new babe that then has to develop and grow. And can a, a newborn baby immediately say, Mama, Dada, and Jesus? No. 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 
And so there's this moment that there is an acceptance of Christ that yes, for some people, it is a quiet thing. It is what would almost be considered secretive because of the way we communicate in this 21st century. It would be seen as secretive as a result, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. However, they've made a decision for Christ. It's just not, I've got to blab to everybody that I'm now a Jesus follower and I'm a Christian. And so if you don't follow him, then you're going to hell and I'm better than you. Like, that's not the way a new Christian should act. It's not the way a seasoned Christian should act either, though there are some people that do. And so there's sometimes a moment, even as in a, a seasoned Christian, somebody who's been a Christian for over 20 years or somebody who's been a Christian for several years now, over five years, has there been a time that you knew that it just wasn't the right time to tell somebody about Jesus when you were in a conversation? Yeah, because it, it takes time to build a relationship with someone. A friendship just doesn't happen overnight. It's not like it's you really have to know a friend and to continue on. Because sometimes people just want to be heard. So yeah. when you're talking to someone, they just want to tell you about who they are and what their day is. And they don't want any advice or any information from you because they don't want a connectivity towards each other. Mm -hmm. Then there are friends that want to be reciprocal of each other. Right. And those are sometimes rare to find. And so you know through the discernment of the Holy Spirit when it's time to, hey. And others will always recognize the Jesus inside of you. They'll always see Christ Jesus shining in you. So sometimes it's not even a question in the person's mind of, you know, do you know who Christ is? Because others just recognize it from spirit to spirit. Right. I wholeheartedly agree. Did you have something to add? Whenever you have a new friendship or even an old friendship with a person and they're stuck on this one thing or you don't always just want to throw Jesus at them and be like, you need to trust Jesus right now. Because, But um, in conversations, like it's not always throwing Jesus at them. I've had conversations with people and some Christians may see this as awful and how dare you, you sinner. And they've talked to me about their gods and their religion. And I've carried on a conversation with them about that. And I would put in my perspective on religion, not throwing Jesus at them, but how I believe. I'd put my perspective of how I believe and tell that to them. And then they'd tell me how they believe and how they worship their gods or worship this or worship that. And some people may say, how dare you? That's blasphemous. Why are you talking about a false God to somebody else instead of you should only be talking about Jesus because Jesus is the one true God. But at the same time, it's not always important to just throw Jesus at everybody. It takes time to build the relationship with the people before you can say, Hey, you should read some of this scripture or Hey, would you mind if I prayed for you? That takes time to build up to that point. And it's, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, if they ask, are you a Christian? You don't say no and then try and lead them to the Lord afterwards, mm -hmm. you say, yes, I am. That's the way I believe. But if that's not the way you believe, that's okay. I'll still love you anyways. I'll still be friends with you anyways. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, great perspective. Have you ever noticed that when you're keeping a secret, such as the secret of your, like, your faith, and this is the example that we see with Joseph of Arimathea, that there is a moment, a climax period where, okay, I've just got to reveal this secret. Like this is going to come out 
one way or the other. And so I've got to proclaim it and I might as well do it with as much boldness as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happens, doesn't it? Okay. And the thing about Joseph of Arimathea that I think is just so profound is, is that look at the way he does it. It's not like he's just sitting there, uh, watches Jesus's body come down and then goes up to the Roman soldier and requests Jesus's body to take it. No, he goes to the Roman leader of that city of Jerusalem. He goes into the courthouse or into the, the um, palace that he is living in. And he requests Jesus's body face to face with the governor of that area. I mean, that's pretty bold. That's like immediate tabloid stuff. That's like, you don't have, you don't have the, the, uh, uh, you know, these fake, the sun like they do in the UK or the national Enquirer in the U S that they do, or all of the media in India that we have that likes to gossip about things. This is Joseph of Arimathea. Somebody could take his picture He's talking to Pontius Pilate. They could take his picture, taking Jesus's body and going and burying him. I mean, this is all fact stuff that people are witnessing Joseph do. And it's probably written up in documentation because Pilate would have things like a request like this written down in the annals of what he did while he was the overseer of Jerusalem. And so this is all documented stuff that's going on and... Joseph's okay with that. He's like, hey, I may have been in secret for this time, but now it's time for me to show everybody that I'm a Christian. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's the way Romans, Paul, the apostle, opens up the book of Romans. And the way he concludes it is this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's the way he concludes the book of Romans is we open it with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then we conclude it with the fact that the secret has been, all mysteries, all secrets have been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And so now there may be those moments that I keep something quiet, but yet the secret is going to be revealed. It is important for us to make sure that we do that, even in those moments when we are suffering. And Xavier's got that for us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so, so often what we do is we find ourselves in positions where we think that we're suffering, and this can be mental, emotional, this can be actual physical suffering, this can be self-induced 
types of feelings where we feel like everybody is out to get us. Uh, imposter syndrome uh, has been one that has been spoken about for a few years, I've noticed on different podcasts. I've noticed in different health magazines, especially those of psychologists and sociologists, that this imposter syndrome is out there where we inflect on ourselves that we're just an imposter and we're not really who we think we are. And this comes about to destroy us. And yet, when we are suffering, we proclaim Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we are redeemed. Pretty powerful stuff. So these guys hit the moment of confession at the most pivotal time that they possibly could. They have authority in the Sanhedrin, which we already mentioned is the legislative body within the Jewish uh, synagogue. They both have money, so therefore they have the ability to uh, influence people with their money. Uh, they have publicly confessed Christ and being disciples of his, and they are well aware that that confession of Christ as their master, savior, king will have ramifications against their reputation in the days ahead around other Jewish Christians, around those that are in the Sanhedrin, and that they are most likely going to make some people very upset with them, maybe even angry with them. And those are people that would have been close to them before, such as family, friends, and co-workers. And yet the moment has come that it's time to confess Christ as Savior. And they don't allow these troublesome, worrisome things to affect them negatively, but instead proclaim Jesus as Christ. They then, as priests, perform a priestly duty in accordance with the book of Leviticus, where priestly duties are given, especially when it comes to burying the dead, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus's body and they begin the purification rites to put his body in the tomb in accordance with Jewish laws. As we have already said in the book of Matthew, we know that this tomb is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It is a new tomb. And in those days, when people bought plots in order to bury their dead, it wasn't like a cemetery is today, where my family would be next to your family, who would be next to your somebody else's family, who would be next to somebody else's family in the community, and then their cousin who was living in Europe, uh, in Italy, they died, and then we brought their body back and we buried them next. To, you know, it didn't work like that. A family burial ground is what we're talking about here, where Joseph of Arimathea's family is what is going to be buried in this area. And yet it's a new tomb showing us most likely that Joseph of Arimathea, who is wealthy, had come into his wealth within his lifetime. It was not a previous thing that had happened. And so he had bought this area where uh, of a garden and it had a tomb, it was brand new and no other body had ever been laid in it, which I know sounds kind of weird, but you think about the mausoleums that we have nowadays where you have multiple people that are inside of the mausoleum, you put their, you know, you put a casket in there, or you put a uh, piece of their pieces of their body in there and there's multiple people inside of that mausoleum. That's not what's going on here. We have Jesus is by himself placed into a tomb. They did this to fulfill customs. And so I, I, I'm just curious, this is on topic, but off topic. Are customs, traditions, and laws of your culture a good or a bad thing? 
there's nothing wrong with following the customs of your culture, even if you do believe in Christ or anything else. Uh, but there does come a point where you don't need to be bound by your customs because Christ has freed you from all that and you are a new person. And so you don't have to be bound by your customs, but you still can participate and do you complete the customs of whichever culture you're from. Correct. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Do or can customs prevent a person from following Christ or from becoming a Christian? Not necessarily. I think yes and no. I think a person can be so caught up in their traditions, their customs, and their family that it can prevent them from following after Christ. However, I also think that they can still follow Christ if they choose to on the other side and still be very honorable in their family's customs, traditions, and culture. I think there is a both and that is possible there. And the reason I bring it up is because I want to dispel the fact of, of what so many people are so worried about. I remember talking to a dear friend of mine 11 years ago. We were in Jaipur, Rajasthan. And the reason that he didn't, he, he was telling me all of the stuff. We had become very close friends. We would go out um, three nights every single week for tandoori chicken on the streets. It was so tasty. Gosh, I miss those days. But we would go out and we would talk. And after a year and a half of conversations, I remember coming to the point where I asked the young man, I said, it sounds to me like you're wanting to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And he looked at me and he said, I don't think it's fair because my grandfather died without knowing who Jesus is. And so therefore, it's not fair for me to become a Christian and for my grandfather to not have been. And so he allowed family, customs, culture, tradition, to prevent him from following Jesus on that day. I'm not saying that that continued on. I'm just saying in that moment, he didn't want to confess Christ as his Lord and Savior. I'm saying in that moment, he allowed tradition and family to prevent him from becoming a follower of Jesus. And so with that, when are customs, tradition, and culture a bad thing? When do they become more important than anything else in your life, that's when they're wrong. Our traditions that help a person remember who their family is and what part of the world they came from, evil, when that person becomes a Christian. No. That's where you that's your family. That's where you're from. You can't deny who you were or who you are. That's your life. And you can't immediately just blow off everybody in your family or in your life. I mean, that's who you are. That's how you were raised. You can't get rid of that. So no, I don't think it's evil whenever you become a Christian and all of your, and you still follow family traditions and customs because that's where your family is from. I agree. Okay, then let me ask you this. Have you known people who call themselves Christians that try and make everybody get rid of their friends and ignore their family and remove all their traditions. Yes, yes. yes but we're not going to say who. I didn't say to say right. who. I said, have you known that? There is a thing called cults. <laughs> and future cults. And future cults. I mean, yeah, of course, there's people out there like that. Follow me instead. Right. I mean, get this. Here's something for you to ponder. Do you realize that people call their friends on, like, Facebook or Instagram their followers? 
So in messages, it's like, well, I need to tell my followers. Yes, I've well, seen I that. I need to tell my followers. And it's like, oh, my, 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 my. They're no longer our friends. They're no longer our family. They've become our followers. And like so, we're the leader. Like we Follow are the leader. leader. Yeah. Exactly. And I was like, it was just something to ponder. Yeah. It goes right along with what we're talking about because we see people make demands of those who are their followers. Right. And they say, I want you to start becoming like me. I think about the traditions that people have followed and they brought into other countries as a dominant force. Okay, we are now the imperial that have come in and we want this village to no longer, because we think the color red is offensive, any villager seen wearing the color red is going to be executed. And so that village's color that identified where their village was from was the color red. But now the imperialists have come in and tried to remove the, the tradition. Christ doesn't do that. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't come in and say, I'm going to remove everything that ascribes you to your family, your family history. No, instead he says, I'm going to fulfill it and I'm going to be your master and your savior and your king. And together with what your family heritage is, the culture that you came from and the country that you live in, together you will be able to worship the one true God without an imperialist telling you all of that is wrong. Oh, I can't believe you're wearing shorts. Oh my goodness, you're going to hell. You can't play sports, otherwise you're going to hell. And yet this is the way some Christians have acted throughout the years. This is not the way Christ treated anybody. In fact, upon his burial, customs of the Jewish tradition were followed in his burial on purpose. There was a reason for that because Jesus didn't come to this earth to destroy our customs, to destroy our heritage, and to destroy our past. He came to fulfill it. So say my family member wears a certain hat, and that's what identifies my village. No Christian should come in and say, you can't wear that hat. That's not true Christianity, period. Say it's a certain type of jewelry that your village is known for wearing. Nobody, if they're properly following Jesus, can come in and say, you can no longer wear that jewelry. Because that is not the way Christ treated anybody. He never treated people that way. And if you're guilty of treating people that way, may I encourage you with a sincere heart, repent of your sin because you have not been treating people properly as Christ would treat them when you're making demands of them to change their heritage, their culture, and their customs. You have broken the commandments of God, period, the end. It's not what Jesus would do, especially when those things do not lead to idol worship, or following away from him as the one true God. If there is something in your culture, in your customs, or in your tradition that leads you away from Jesus, away from the one true God, and makes you, forces you into, or even causes you to think about idol worship, then yes, that needs to be cast to the side, period, the end. But I've got a warning here. The same is true for you if you're a Christian. If you stop praying to Jesus, who is our mediator, 
to the throne room of God and you start praying to another person, an idol, a relic, you are no different than the villager that has been praying to a false idol all their life. You have now become the same thing that you despise in the tribal that you think is worshiping a stone. When you worship a relic, you are the same. You have identified yourself as the same. Hebrews chapter eight, verses one through six says, Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he meditates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. For when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Customs and traditions are important to reveal to us our past from where we came from and the discovery of Christ and the new life that he's leading us to. He is the one whom we depend on for our salvation. He is the one whom we depend on for our daily breath. He is the one that we depend on for our daily bread. He is the one that we depend on for our future, whether that be tomorrow or that be the future that is afar off. Don't allow your customs, your traditions, and your culture to lead you away from Christ, but instead allow him to fulfill you and you will be in the true fulfillment of what Christ wants for your life. Point number four is that Jesus's body was placed into a tomb. Customarily, his body was wrapped. He was had this aloe and this myrrh put around his body. He was then placed into the tomb. Most likely his body was wrapped and then he had a face cloth that was wrapped over the top of it, his face, and then a massive stone. They would have walked out. They would have had multiple people help them roll a massive stone in front of the grave. And Matthew tells us that this tomb or burial place that was owned by Joseph would have been only Jesus's body in that area. Meaning Jesus, if he really stayed in the tomb, or was stolen, or was just a good man, that tomb would have become a shrine that pilgrims would still go to today. 
I think about the Kabbalah square, the giant square black box that we see in Mecca today that Muslim pilgrims have to, at one point in their life, if they are a good Orthodox Muslim, they have to take Hajj, they have to travel to Mecca, and they have to bow before that stone, that moon rock that is inside of that uh, black box that is there, because that's exactly what is in there. There is a moon uh, stone uh, meteorite that is in there. It was an original idol um, of, of Mecca that has been worshipped by the Muslims as a representation of Allah. And there is a shrine built there for the Muslims to go to. I think about the time that we went to Kandy, Sri Lanka. And as we were in Kandy, the city, there is a temple there and it was dedicated to Buddha. And that reason that they built this elaborate, expensive, well-groomed, I mean, gold-laden, absolutely beautiful temple was because they had a tooth that they say was from Buddha that was inside of the most inner part of the temple. And there was a certain time of the day that they would open up the doors so that that way you could see the Buddhist priests pull out Buddha's old tooth and people gathered by the thousands to worship just a glimpse of Buddha's tooth. These are what shrines are but yet there's not a shrine dedicated to the tomb of where Jesus was laid, showing us that historically, obviously he rose from the dead. I also want to go back to that warning that I had given earlier in case people don't think I'm being fair towards the weirdness within Christianity. There are Christians who think that relics of saints or supposed relics of Jesus's disciples can be prayed to. They have become shrines. In fact, there have been churches built to these relics that have showed us to be no different than any other religion when we do those kinds of things. And yeah, I know I'm calling it out saying that this is not Christianity as its true nature because it's not. Recently, within the recent years, some knucklehead out there says that he found a cloth, a shroud, and he says that it has the imprint of Jesus's burial face. And that is the burial cloth that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus's face in. And I can remember going to a cathedral while we were in America, mostly by pictures, where they had a copy, a picture of this shroud saying that this was the burial cloth of Jesus. And they wanted people to pray to it so that that way they could worship it and have healings for their problems. This is false worship. There's been nothing left of Jesus's body. There was nothing left because he rose from the grave. And to get caught up in this kind of nonsense, this idol worship, is to fall into the pagan teaching and the pagan hands of what we have been brought out of. And so We've got to be warned not to go back into that place as Paul, as John, as so many of the disciples have warned us before not to fall back into the temptation of the old way of worshiping, but to see Jesus as the true God that he really is. The truth is Jesus's body was placed into a tomb. He was dead. A stone was placed over that burial plot. Roman centurions later, we'll read it in just a second, were placed on guard 
to guard on duty to guard this tomb of Jesus. But their job didn't last but a couple of days, or even we could say a couple of hours, because as we will discover next week, Jesus's body was only in that burial plot for three days because he is today resurrected. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing the stone and setting a guard. So this is where we leave our passage of scripture today. Jesus has been buried. There's guards set there. There's a seal on the tomb, making sure that if anybody breaks the seal, that they have broken Roman authority and it's punishable by death. Remember, Jesus isn't going to stay there. All right, Mallory. Thank you, Jesus, for this day and for every single day and that everybody will have a great day today and that we will all praise Jesus forever and ever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.